0: Amen. Good morning, church. Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, If you're looking for a seat, you can head over that way. and Maybe find one, or you can come up here with me. Um, I don't recommend that. Um, Good to be with you guys. Uh, If I could just, uh, before we kind of roll right into the text, get into the uh, sermon today, uh, just want to give an encouragement and an exhortation to parents. Uh, What we're going to try to do as... uh, this place continues to grow as, this, as the kids' ministry continues to grow and as the, the ministry laborers who are in the harvest back there continue to grow weary. Um, if we could just begin to make a little bit of a shift. I know some of you guys do this already, but um, post-sermon, after communion, if you guys could do your best to maybe go grab your children to worship Jesus with them uh, on the back end, that would be wonderful. Uh, so then our volunteers aren't there having lunch and maybe dinner okay so uh, just do your best with the help of the Holy Spirit uh, to go enjoy your little ones and and maybe bring them back in so they can worship as well uh, with us um, on the back and we're just trying to cultivate to where our, our, even our, our servants back there can maybe grab the tail end of the service on the weeks that they don't get to worship uh, right now because gathering at one time uh, they they serve us all morning uh, and don't get to enjoy this. So that would be great. Uh, Burton Kids, I see they've made their way out. Um, just want to say if you're new, visiting, first time, really, really thrilled that you're here. Uh, just glad that you're here with us. So what we do here is we love to worship Jesus. I hope that's been kind of clarified and, and uh, made very clear just by the songs we've been singing. But there are a number of ways that we worship, okay, and we, we do that through this service in this time with our lives when we leave this place. But here you're going to see it done a number of ways. One is through singing songs. So um, the songs are particular. They're not random. They're ones that we we pick and we want to sing so we can declare the infinite perfections of God bound up primarily in his son, Jesus Christ. So we're going to sing about Jesus and his fame and his glory as we uh, sing. We're also going to sit under uh, the teaching of God's word where we learn more about this Jesus Christ who is glorious in all that he is and all that he exists in. And what he's done for us primarily in his death and resurrection. So uh, we love to sit under the word and walk through teaching. We also uh, worship Jesus by observing the the Lord's Supper. It's a gift God gave us uh, in Jesus Christ. Christ. He said, hey, do this and remember me. Be nourished by all that I've done for you and all that I am for you when you gather. And so we love to do that after the sermon. And then we also worship Jesus by giving because God is the most generous God and he gives primarily most generously in his son to us. So uh, if you're a regular attender or a member, you know that we give in the silver black boxes on the back. We don't pass a plate. So uh, if you're new visiting, uh, checking out who Jesus is, what Christianity is all about. You're brought by a friend. Uh, They didn't bring you so that you could fill our uh, stock. We just want you to know Jesus just love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and find life in him. Uh, that's why we're thrilled that you're here. So, um, if you have your Bible, go to Romans chapter eleven. Here is what we're going to do. I want you to understand what we normally do in this place together as a people, as we walk through books of the Bible. So, we take um, books of the Bible and we uh, look at them, so we can slowly grow in the full counsel of what God has to say for us as His people. And sparingly, within the primary diet of taking books and walking through them, we uh, take topics or we take things that we believe. Are are really, really necessary for us as a people. And so we're going to be taking the next eight weeks. We just finished Ecclesiastes uh, last Sunday. We're going to take the next eight weeks, and we're going to uh, really dig our well deep into what are the things that mark us as God's redeemed people. What are the things that, that we decided basically four years ago when we started this church? What are the things that are going to be the things that, that describe us, that, we're a, that the engine that drives us as a people? And um, about four years ago, when we were meeting and uh, we had about 18 of us, and we were just praying and seeking that what the Lord might do. Um, there were four things that really became readily apparent that, that really should be a part of the fabric of the local church, okay? Uh, as a people in what we do, the things that, that drive us. And so if you've been, a, been here any length of time, you know there are four, uh, we call them the identity of us, right? Um, values or convictions that really do everything. So there's gospel, we're gospel driven. That's the thing that, that fuels us, okay? The, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that a holy, righteous God who, us standing before him, rightly deserving wrath and judgment and payment for our sin, that he would actually go to the cross and, and ransom us to himself through his own work and appease himself by a work of himself is crazy, scandalous, and awesome. And so we're going to celebrate that every single Sunday we walk in here. That's going to form us from the bottom of our core. So the gospel of Jesus Christ drives everything that we do as a people. Paul will say in the New Testament that this is of first importance. This is the thing that you got to get right. Okay, you can screw up on carpet color and sound of music and, and what the walls look like and different other things, but don't get this wrong. Don't get the atonement wrong. Don't get the sacrifice wrong. Don't get the necessity of faith alone and Christ alone wrong or you'll be a broken people. Okay, amen? So so this is what drives us. Then following that, we're a word-driven people. We believe that this book alone, this this Bible, these 66 books are the thing that give us all we need for life and godliness. They pertain the revelation of God to us, that he knows we're a thinking people, that he knows that we're a people that like to read, and so he wrote us a book, right? He, he gave us his inspired and fallible and errant word. So that's going to drive also our life together. We say a lot, we don't feel like we have to fear the truth, we just let the truth do its own work. So we're just going to open up the text, read it, and let it fall in our hearts gladly and respond rightly, right? We're going to let the text read us more than we are going to read it. So so we're a word-driven people. That flows into healthy discipleship. The Great Commission tells us, hey, you're going to go make disciples of all nations. That's the mandate and mission from Jesus Christ. We're going to explain what that looks like and why that needs to happen and then we'll end with mission. God ultimately calls all of those things to undergird the mission we're on as a people, right? Driven by the gospel, founded on the word, and making disciples as we go and proclaim and make his name famous. Um, I, fi- I feel like it's going to be very appropriate for this season we're in, um, and I believe God wants to do a lot more than we even would expect in this, okay? So this is, this is necessary, this is vital. So why don't we take a second to ask God to do what we can't do, uh, to continue to form us as a people, as a family, uh, in the ways that he would like. So why don't you take a moment with him, do business with him, do some examination maybe, maybe you come in this room with a lot of other things on your mind, and God wants to dial you into his heart right now. He wants to dial you into his mind, how he thinks, what he's like. So, would you ask him to be gracious to you? Would you ask his Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the things that only he can open your eyes to? Would you ask him to be kind? Would you ask him to help make clear? Father, we thank you that you've given us your Bible. And God, we thank you that it's a book about you and really not about us at all. So God, would you help us to see you more clearly today? Would you help our hearts to well up in the things that matter? God, would you center us on the things that matter? Would you help us to be a people that bring you glory and fame and praise? God, you know that we long to see many more brought from death to life, many more seeing the God of the universe as rightly and as clearly as you allow us to see you. So would you help us this morning in that way? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Romans chapter 11. uh, here's what I want you to understand. These things, a lot of people, um, when you, know, you start saying, hey, what are your values? Whenever you plant a church, that's like the thing, right? Every organization wants to, what are your values? What are you? so, so listen, I, I like looking at these things less as values and more as convictions, okay? And there's a, actually a big difference. Listen, values are something you'll just commit to together, um, but convictions are things you'll sacrifice for okay? And that's huge. These are convictional beliefs that that we hold together, that we want to fuel and drive us as a people, as the engine, right? So that we might be and understand life in the fullest possible sense as God has made us to be, okay? So so these are not just values, not just cute concepts. These are things, as we looked at the scriptures together, we said, okay, these look like the at least four. There are many that are inexhaustible, but four things that God wants to be the things that drive His people. Now this morning, really, um, we're just going to talk about the God of the scriptures because here's the thing if we talk about being gospel driven if we talk about a people that are that are fueled and founded upon this great beautiful work that Jesus Christ did then listen um you have to go to the one who made the gospel, right? The one who wrote the gospel. It's his gospel. It's not your gospel. It's not my gospel. We didn't, you know, decide it. He decided from the beginnings of the of the foundations of the world, he decided this would be his great gospel work, that Jesus Christ, who is preeminent in everything, would be this cornerstone to his great, glorious work. So this being his idea and his thought, we want to start with him. If this is all his idea and his makeup, let's look at who the God of the scriptures are. And I've shared with you that one of the things when I was 19 years old, and I had what I will continue to call my crisis of faith, grew up in a Christian home, heard the gospel my entire life growing up, great Christian family, great gospel-centered teaching church. I still missed parts of it due to the blindness of my eyes and hardness of heart, and I get to college in a seemingly Christian college. I won't give the name, but it's in quotes, right? So I, I go to that college, and I expect, man, to be taught the truth, to be taught the word, to be taught the centrality of God and the scriptures, and I find out very quickly that there was just... A lot of craziness being taught. So I I had my crisis of faith going. I thought that he was a Christian. He's teaching me these things that are erroneous. He's teaching me that Adam and Eve weren't real people. The the Bible's kind of filled with color. It's not clear. Truth is subjective, not objective. That, That God doesn't really speak fully in his word or through Jesus Christ. But through these ways, when you do these other things, there's a lot of mysticism and Existentialism, and I, I just said, "Okay, I, I got to drill down and realize what does the Scriptures alone say about God Himself." And I will tell you, as I went back to my dorm room and opened up Genesis one and read, read to Revelation twenty two, there was a theme, there was a song that wove itself through the whole entire Bible that I never really picked up on before, and it was this: that God created everything. I mean, He spoke everything into existence for one primary overarching highest goal and that is that his name that his existence that his very essence would be praised because of his very nature okay so we have a God in the scriptures revealed through creation revealed through Jesus Christ revealed through the Bible that says I dwell in what he will call infinite perfections and because he dwells in infinite perfections, he demands and deserves the highest praise and glory. Okay, now, now here's why this is awesome. The more I began to read through that and see this is true, true about God, I started writing down every verse I saw that had to the glory of his name, for his name's sake, to the praise of his glory. And what you'll find if you do that, you'll find it over 275 times. So I'll save you the, the homework, okay? So you'll, you'll see this over and over and over and over. And that began to cause me to ask a lot of good questions. Okay, so so why is that good for me? Why does it matter that, that God knows that I've been wired and made and created from the garden to worship him as he dwells in his infinite perfections? And why is that a blessing to my soul? Why is that a gift to my happiness and my joy? And I quickly saw that the more that you enjoy God for who he is, the happier you are. Because when you live how you're wired, you're joyful. And you're joyful when you do what makes you most happy. The problem is you don't know what makes you most happy and joyful. But God does. And so I remember getting to Isaiah 48 where he says what seems like an outlandish statement. He says, I will not give my glory to anyone else. So in light of that, um, when it comes to the glory of God, I want to give you guys two explanations I've found helpful. Then I want to look at Romans 11 and some other places uh, as well. But here are two that I've found helpful. And as someone you might have heard of him, Tim Keller, he's kind of smart, sometimes knows what he's talking about. He said... He said this. No, I strongly encourage you to read him if you don't. He said this. He said, The glory of God is at least the combined magnitude of all God's attributes and qualities put together. And glory is the manifest beauty of God's perfections. Okay, so what, what he's helping us understand, right? And this is really just what the Bible's saying. He's helping us see and understand that, that God exists in infinite perfection, right? His, his qualities are innumerable. We talked a couple of weeks ago how Augustine tried to make a doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. He's going, there's always going to be mystery. We see dimly, net, not in fullness. Well, it'll all be made clear when we see him face to face, The scriptures say. So there's, in some way now, we will know as much as he allows us to know and he will withhold secrets that are only according to him, Deuteronomy says. And so we have this amazing God whose, whose mind and thoughts and wisdom and perfections would astound us. They push our brains far than it has capacity to go. This God dwells in perfection to what we can't Handle. We've never seen it. We've never felt it. We will never know it until we're fully in glory. And so we're seeing here that he basically has unending beauty. Our alphabet doesn't have enough letters for his beauty or his glory or his splendor or his majesty or his immensity. We, we can't possibly get our arms around the elephant that it is to be in God's presence. And so here he's helping us understand that God is infinite in wisdom, knowledge, superiority, splendor, immensity, and that pushes our minds to places that it can't possibly go. But the reality of that is what causes us to worship him. So look at what Paul does. Paul knows this. Paul was saved by his glory on the Damascus Road. Jesus just shows up, he's blinded by his glory, becomes a Christian. And he just sings about it in Romans 11. Look at this in Romans 11:33. Actually, in the New Testament church history, you can see this is one of the most uh, fundamental songs that would be said and sung about God's infinite perfections. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? He's kind of humorous. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory, be glory forever. So, so Paul just starts this song about the infinite perfections of God and he just he's just looking for words to describe how awesome he is. You can almost hear Paul singing this. He's going, oh, the, the riches of God, the wisdom of God, the beauty of God, the splendor of God, the immensity of God, the superiority of God. He's just singing out how awesome God is, how amazing God is, how big God is, how glorious God is. And he's talking about his rulership. He goes, man, you can't scrutinize him, you can't counsel him, you can't judge him. As soon as you think you've got God in a box, he makes him bigger and brighter. As soon as you think you don't need sunglasses to wear, you need to put them back on. He is a God that just dwells and exists in beauty that is beyond comparison, right? No no forged idol, no man-made God, no God of any other system can be the deity that is the God of the scriptures. That's what Paul's getting at. is what Paul wants your heart to well up in, right? He wants you to see his immensity here, and he's showing us that there is no square inch where God doesn't say, this is my creation. He's sustained. He it all, he made it all, he owns it all. Okay, so he's getting across all of these products of God. And he doesn't only know it all, he's not only rich in that, he has knowledge of everything. I mean, his knowledge goes to a place your mind can't go, that he knows every decimal point in the math system and beyond. He knows time further than time, he's outside of time. He knows the future, he doesn't only know the future, he stands in the future. He can exist and be things that we don't understand. He knows the depth of every ocean, grains of sand, every molecule, every atom, every DNA particle. He knows how everything's woven together and kept together, the orbit lines of planets. He knows everything perfectly and beyond. He's the professor you want in school. He's the one you want teaching you everything that you know. He is beyond our capability and that's why Paul just starts asking questions. How can you scrutinize him? How can you think that you know more than him? How can you put, think that in some way, even as we operate right, as Christians, that we could maybe put him in our debt and make agreements with him and contracts and tell him that we'll follow him and love him if he does this for us or this for us? Or, God, why did you screw up humanity this way? Why didn't you wire marriage this way? Why didn't you go on and on, right? How can we possibly scrutinize God? He made it. He created it. He's beyond it. It's profound here. And he's he's showing that, yes, God has revealed himself through his word, through creation, through Jesus, but there will always be mystery to him. Otherwise, friends, you would be him. I mean, I find it so comical when I sit down with people and they're going, man, I just, no, I need to know this. I demand an answer for this. I'm going, no, no, that's good to want an answer. And God might have revealed an answer for that very thing. But I want you to understand, if you really knew every concept, every piece of everything, then you would actually functionally be him and you're impossible of ever getting to that place. So he's showing us just how big he is. Trying to figure out the infinite nature of God is like you trying to catch an ant in the Sahara desert with a toothpick. You just keep trying. And it's an impossible task. How could you possibly do that? How could you possibly think you're going you're to come across the infinite wisdom that he is, the infinite knowledge that he is, the infinite richness that he is, yet our hearts want to continually drive towards that, right, as the people of God. We want to know that more fully amazing. I mean, you and I, right, we need stuff to make stuff, right? I mean, if you're going to build a house, you need lumber. You need nails. If you're going to draw a picture, you need paper. You need markers. You know what God did? God from eternity past gets you know the, the angelic host together, and he's going, hey, uh, I'm going to make a universe. And they're all getting they get in their huddle, and they're going, okay, universe. Well, first, I don't see any material anywhere. I don't know how he's going to put that together. And what is a universe, right? And he goes, here it is, and he says, it says Hebrews 1, by the word of his power, he says, universe, and you've got existence, ex nihilo of stuff that never existed. I mean, just, just try to think about that for a minute. That God does not need material. He doesn't need substance. He needs nothing to make everything. He makes out out of nothing. This is the godness of our God. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 11. You haven't seen anything like him, and you'll never see anything else like him. This is what our God does. This is who our God is. What a profound, amazing God. So Paul says, how can you scrutinize God if he's so immense, so big, so mighty? Time and time again, our response is going to be, I don't know, worship him. I don't know, praise his name. But that's where he's going. That's where the scriptures go. That's where actually the scriptures want you to get in your heart. So now let me tell you why it's so important to see this. Why it's so important that we talk about this before we get to anything else. Because you'll read, if if you read your Bible, you'll see that this infinite perfection, infinite wisdom, infinite richness, infinite knowledge of God is the basis of our worship. Like, it's, it's fundamentally, and it's so funny because I don't even know if you've stopped to think, I wonder why I worship God. I wonder why I gather. Why do I sing? Why do I sit under the Word? Why do I do anything? I wonder if you've even asked that question. Why do I X, Y, Z? Because God in his infinite perfections, is the basis of, his, of our worship. And because God exists in this nature, he has no need of anyone or anything to help that godness about him. To hear people say, well, I don't understand why follow him and serve him then, right? What's the point? If he doesn't need me, he doesn't need us, I mean, why should I even desire that? And here's the thing on the, on the first hand is God, God does not need to force you or twist your arm, like when you get to see the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ, in his written word, in creation, when God through his mercy, illumination of the Holy Spirit allows you to taste a morsel of his glory, you're going to see this in the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, every time that happens, you can't help but keep your flaming yawn and not go back to ramen noodles. You know what I'm saying? Like, like no one does that, unless you're vegan, I mean you can't. Do that. No one is going. I had this incredible meal and I got like noodles that are half burnt, half crispy, half okay with some little weird flavored packet, man, this is so much better. I want that. I want to keep wanting that. That's what happens in conversion, right? You see God in his glory. I'm going to help you. If you don't know what happened, that's what happened. You saw God in his glory. You couldn't believe it. You could not withstand it and you had to have all of Jesus Christ. You, you had to have what he offered you the gospel. You had to have forgiveness of sin because it was glory. And you realize the foundational sin of the universe was you made something more ultimate than him in your life. That's the easiest way I can explain sin. And so here we see that God is not weak. He just reveals himself. He does not force anybody to love him. He does not force anybody to get saved. He simply says, here I am. Now, if you're wondering where I get that, you can look at anybody in the Bible. There are just a couple. I mean, look at the response of people who just get to see a glimpse of the glory of God. I love Isaiah. There are two, Isaiah and Ezekiel. Those are two of my favorites. When I was reading through when I was 19, these two stood out. I actually had them circled in my Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 6. Look at what happens with Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. So prophet, we would all agree, is probably a pretty good guy, right? On the deed scale. Right? He's a pretty good guy. Right, Prophet Isaiah, sent to proclaim the coming Messiah. Sent to show that God would rescue a people through the sacrifice of his own. He says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He's going to get a, a picture, a vision, a, a glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you actually read John, it'll say and show you that this vision from Isaiah is actually Jesus on the throne. So when we say God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, they are one God, two distinct persons, both declaring and showing the radiance and glory of God. So here we see this, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. Okay, this is the prophet Isaiah, right? Sees a glimpse of the glory of God, gets a morsel of his glory, morsel of this vision. He says, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah says okay get this I'm I'm writing this inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to tell you of this vision that I saw of the glory of God and you have to notice when he saw this, when God revealed himself in the way that he did to him, it was when King Uzziah died. Now, now, if you know anything about Israel, they do great when there's good kings, bad when there's bad kings. Okay, kind of like America, right? So, so this is how they operate, right? So, so this is how they're going, and they, they have this King Uzziah for 52 years, and he's an awesome king. He's, he's who they want. He's the person they put in office. Man, they are thrilled to have him, and he passes away, and everyone's going, what in the world do we do now? We're lost, and I love this. In the midst of fear and panic, God goes, hold on, Isaiah. Let me show you something a lot more important. And let, let, let me just reveal myself. Let me get your eyes off of your circumstance. Let me show you something so much bigger, so much wider, that you can't even handle to see. And God, in the middle of that, shows him He goes, forget about this little king with this little scepter on this little planet, on his little throne, right? What, you want to see the one who sits on the throne, capital T? You want to see the one who is creator of all, sustainer of all, author of all? Go ahead, take your sunglasses off. Go ahead. And he shows him, and when he sees God, he goes, no way, you're going to kill me. And this guy, a prophet says, he thinks of his mouth, how he's got a dirty mouth. Now, I'm reading this going, okay, this is a prophet, right? And he sees the glory of God, and he's laid naked based upon some things he said that were bad. I mean, I know my own rap sheet, right? I'm going, what would I do? I mean, how would I feel? I mean, this is what the glory of God does. It shows you how naked you are without him. It shows you how necessary it is that he intervenes in some way for you. I love this. this, this picture. It's so holy, it's so beautiful. That's what happens when God reveals himself. Look at Ezekiel 1. He shares this vision that he got, a morsel of the glory of God. He says in Ezekiel one twenty six, above the spants over their heads. He's talking about these angels that he saw. I just can't even imagine this. I mean, if you've ever read the Bible, and you try to actually just think about the stuff you're reading, like, like being there and picturing these things. Right? I always say, get into the story. So here is... Ezekiel saying, above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above the throne was a figure of that like a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as with full of fire. And that from down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. What did you do? Um, I don't know if you've read this description before, but every time you read, like in Revelation 4 with John, every time somebody shares their picture, it's this kind of similar theme with similar words. I can't really quite make it out. I'm trying to describe it. It was bright, beautiful, glowing, holy, radiant. There's no word in our language that can explain what I'm seeing. And this is what Ezekiel's doing, right? He's showing. There's always this very like, little variation, but there's a similar thread of this throne, and he's glowing. And you almost get this feeling like Ezekiel's wrestling for words. Right? I mean, imagine if God revealed his glory to you in, in this kind of way, and then you had to go tell people what you saw. Right? I mean, he's going, okay, so I don't know. You know when like metal gets really hot, it starts glowing, like when it's, it was kind of like that, you know, but I don't know, like top half kind of looked like fire, and then his bottom half was like, I don't know, fire also? I I don't know. He's he's just kind of like trying to get you to understand these things. I mean, because how do you put into words something that's set apart? How do you explain something that dwells in infinite perfections? How? You can't figure it out. You don't have words to say. He's going, I don't know. It's like a, like a rainbow, you know, when a rainbow comes out, like, oh, you know, it's like so beautiful. After a rainy day, it's like this fire, like this metal, like it's glowing, like it's bright. I don't know. Bottom line, when I saw him, I fell on my face. Right? I fell face down because I could not handle the beauty, the splendor, the immensity, the superiority, the majesty. Guys, this is what happens when God reveals himself. He didn't have to try to do anything. He just said, here, let me give you an, a, a tidbit. So go back to Romans 11. This is why Paul's going to say the things that he says. Look at Romans 11. <laughs> Verse 36, the last text. After he explains what our God is like. For from him and through him and to him is everything. To him be glory forever. Paul is helping us to understand, God is helping us understand, that ultimately the origin of everything that is starts and ends with him. Everything. Everything that's made started with him, and in the end, everything ends with him. And here's the question, why? Why? He answers it for you. So that he'd be glorified. I don't like that answer. Well, you weren't made to get glory. You were made to serve and honor someone else. You were hardwired to worship someone else. That he knew when you did, you would be most satisfied. You would be most joyful. You would be most free. You would be most loving. You would be most holy. Now, here's why this is so important. Here's the thing. We kind of scratched the surface on these three years ago, but we were a church of like 50 and now we're 350. So, so we're a different church, right? So here's why this is so important for us to get right now in the history that we are. So many of us have been taught things and need to be retaught things, and some of us have been taught things and need to be untaught things and retaught things many of us maybe if we're honest and there is no shame this is not like a like a how dare you this was me maybe some of you are like me who were thinking even if they weren't aggressively or adamantly taught that the primary reason that god made everything that god spoke planets into existence and created humanity was because god lacked fellowship and god was lonely and so the answer to God, who's in infinite perfections, who doesn't need you and me, the answer to him being lonely is make Mike read? Are you serious? I mean, you, those of you that know me, you're going, I know. I mean, my wife knows. She tells me every night. I know. I know, baby. You're not that big of a deal. Like she, she reminds me of that every night. It's beautiful. And I tell her that. No, I don't, I don't tell her that. <laughs> hi yeah so, so I don't tell her that because I know my place and, and I know who's more godly but but really think about that reality guys I mean really Adam and Eve were the answer like that because God was just longing he was so lonely even though he makes everything out of nothing and doesn't need love doesn't need help And some of us here's the problem if we creep into that theology, that makes you the center of everything. And let me tell you, we do the center of everything, you're miserable, and you are not anywhere near the center. God alone is. And that's why you can pick up this book and you can read it one of two ways. Either this is a book about you. Who should I marry? How do I unlock the happiness code? Should I cuss? Should I drink that or not? Should I? You can do that. Even though there's, yes, there's obedience, there's commands, there's good things we should follow. But Or this is a book solely about the God of the universe. And really, you and I are not in there at all. And it's all about him, and it's all about how we need to enjoy him and make much of him to find life and fullness of life and freedom of life. And the latter is what's true. This is a book because this book from beginning to end, if you read it with any honesty, will show you the primary heart of God. It's not so that you and I would be just saved or lost, but that his name, his character, his essence would be worshipped in its infinite, glorious perfection. That's what this book says. That's what it teaches, and it knows that when you discover that, and when you find that, and when you enter into that, joy is discovered in very unexpected places. You start seeing the world right. Let me just give you a, a couple verses, okay? These are the ones that I started writing down. Now, you don't have to, you can write them, you can just listen. They're not going to be on the screen. Just listen to a number of these, right? Exodus 14. God hardened Pharaoh's heart for the glory Of God. Ezekiel 20, God doesn't destroy Israel for the sake of his name. You'll see for his namesake, for his glory. Psalm 106, he saves people for the namesake of himself, that people might glorify him in the display of his saving power. Psalm 25, God forgives sin, not so that you're just forgiven of sin, so that he might be glorified. Psalm 23, you grow in righteousness so that he might be glorified. 1 Kings 8, Solomon dedicates a temple not for the people, but for the glory of God. 2 Samuel 7, Israel became a great and powerful nation for the glory of God. Isaiah 48, God says, I'm not going to give my glory to anyone or anything. Malachi 2, God says he will destroy Israel because they wouldn't give glory to his name. John 7, Jesus' whole life and ministry was about the glory of God. John 12, the cross of Christ, the whole essence of the personal work of Jesus Christ is about the glory of God. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3 will say that you and I are redeemed, forgiven, made new, given his Holy Spirit, ultimately for the praise of his glorious grace. Incredible, I'm going to keep going. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, right, our bodies are given, not for just our own use, but the glory of God Matthew 5 the Christian life is about the reflection of the glory of God off of our lives onto his 2 Thessalonians 1 the second coming is about the consummation of the glory of God Revelation 21 the consummation of all things is that God might be worshiped Revelation I mean Romans 11 which we just read sums it up to him from him through him are all things to him be glory the ultimate origin of everything that is in the end lands back in God's lap so why so he would be given glory Forever, he would be given praise forever so that our lives not be the drum that beats. It says God is glorious. We might reflect him, be a reflection of his image in his glory like the sun hits a lake and it reflects what it is. Our lives would be a reflection as to how good God is, how holy God is in the face of Jesus Christ as he saves us, gives us his spirit, makes us new, walk as his redeemed people. This glory of God is put on display. Incredible. Now, I can read you 50 more texts. I don't have time, right? We don't have three hours to walk through them, But you can just go through your Bible, do a word study in Bible Gateway, and just put in glory of God for my name's sake, for his name and renown, and you'll just see just pages. And as we see this, you can also see it as you read through redemptive history. Can you not? You can start in Genesis, right? You only get three chapters in where man tries to hijack God's glory. So so what? God makes everything. They have unbridled fellowship. They have unbridled communion with God. They share in the glory of God in the garden. And what happens? The fundamental sin that happens in Genesis 3 is they say, no, we want glory for ourselves. We don't want to give you glory, even though that's how we were made. So they try to steal glory from God. They try to live in their own. And what happens after they sin, God kicks them out of the garden, right? Puts the cherubim in front to signify that glory of God was... To be only for God. That fellowship with God was broken. They sinned by refusing to give God the glory that He deserved. That's the fundamental sin of man. That we take everything God has and God gives for our own use and not for His. That we want to take all God's stuff and own them like we made them and rewrite the story, and you can't. Because in the end, He has the final say, anyways and and that's the story of redemption, right? So from that moment on, it's about God bringing people back to enjoying his glory the way it was meant to be enjoyed. So you have Moses in Exodus, right? Goes up on the mountain. He's with God and God says after Moses says, "Okay, I want to see this glory. I want to see it." And he says, "Okay, well, you might want to like hide under a rock. You might want to watch yourself because you can't handle it, right?" Moses comes back down, his face is glowing because of the morsel of glory that he gets. And it's God coming again The first time since the garden saying, I'm going to display to disobedient Israel my glory. Would you come back to it? Would you see it on the face of Moses? Would you hear it in my good, glad commands? Would you come back to the glory that is me? And it doesn't take long. You know the story. They start forging other gods, making other idols. Then you get to the period where God says, fine, I'm going to put a place on the earth where my glory is going to be. Tabernacle. And then what does he do? They carry that. His glory's there. And to show them that his glory is always before him, he comes out at night in a pillar of fire. He comes out during the day in a cloud of smoke to remind them that his glory is to always be right before them. That this is what it's about. That this is what you're after. This is what I want you to see. And then what happens? They all doubt in the wilderness. They're disobedient again. And then their children inherit the promised land. And God says, okay, enter Solomon. Okay, we're going to make a temple and that's where my glory's going to be. And you know the story, right? They make the temple. God's glory is there. That's where they go for repentance and confession. And they have the priests. And, and then what happens, right? Eventually you get to Ezekiel. Rinse and repeat. History continues since Genesis 3 where you have them all over again going, oh, we're just going to worship gods and idols again. And they start actually drawing them on the walls of the temple. Now, guys, why is it so important to know all of this? the pattern hasn't stopped it's woven into our hearts it's woven into our hearts from the beginning that you and i totally love glory for ourselves and we follow the pattern of adam and eve and the israelites and it follows all the way to the church age where god says i need to do something to realign you in fullness I need to show you my glory in some way that will transform you and make you new and bring about reconciliation, bring about fellowship with me. And he does so right in the glory of his son, Jesus Christ, who's the very radiance and glory of God the Father, who reflects him perfectly, who gives off his glory perfectly, who is that perfect lake that the light, the sun looks on and it shines exactly what you see and it's so beautiful that's what jesus christ is you can see this all the way to the church age right because listen unless the glory of god comes and realigns you with fellowship with him you're lost you're lost i mean you're going about your life seeking for glory for yourself your whole life and that's the fundamental sin of the universe that's all it is and it's this basic form is you making everything else ultimate above god who made you and gave you life and gave your heart and gave you your lungs. And so here, this is awesome. Paul knows this. He writes this in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Look at chapter 3. After he prays for the church, prays for us, prays for this local assembly, Ephesus. He, he asks them that God would do more than he could ever think or, or fathom. That he would remind them of the transformation that he's done in the work of his son. Look what he says at the end. He's been praying for them and says, To him be glory. Why does all that happen? To him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. He'd probably say ever and ever and ever and ever and ever if he had the ability to do that. Amen. Stamps it. Paul says, everything's to be directed towards the sum and purpose of the glory of God. You were saved. You were bought. You were purchased. You were reconciled. Not so you might now just have a new family and just be redeemed, but so that God might get infinite praise. From the deepest part of your soul, and so the creation might even declare your worth. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. He says it's first most clearly seen in Jesus Christ. This Bible speaks of this glory throughout the scriptures, a massive theme. The splendor, beauty, magnificence, weightiness, heaviness, prominence, luminescence, majesty, holiness, purity, worthiness, superiority of the God of the scriptures. And so, when we pray and live and walk and sin, we reveal what? What the glory in our life is. That's what we reveal very simply. What do we live for? What's the point of it all? And Paul will say, and the Bible will say, and God will say to reflect the glory of God. Um, I think it was Augustine. He said, basically, that if you get glory settled, you get every issue in your life settled. Profound. If you just get that one issue settled in your life, everything else is going to be settled for you. I mean, this is, I think it was Luther or somebody who said, hey, the the Ten Commandments, just the first one is the reason for all the rest nine. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't be a glory thief, man. You want him. If you don't want him, you're going to break all nine. That's the reason you fail with all the other nine. So listen, you don't know what to do in your marriage or in your job or in relationships. Our bent is, well, I don't know. What what does he want to do? What does she want to do? No, what does God want you to do? Right? like, like that 's the answer in in your job in your business i mean i don 't know what does, what does my boss want to do what does that person want to do what does my coworker want me to do i don 't know what does God want you to do for his name and renown? what would give him praise? what would give him worship? We have a massive glory problem okay Americans westerners Indians right Asians, Russians, the whole world, every unreached people group has a glory problem it 's my wants my needs my incomes, my convenience my issues what I want what will make me happy no it has nothing to do with you nothing to do with me it's what does God alone God's glory alone want and if we get there we start living free not enslaved to anything else so that we might be whole and purposeful in every bit of what God has designed and wired us to be it's incredible that's heaven that's glory you're, you're free from everything else infringing on you wanting you to have it outside of God That's fundamentally what eternity is for us as Christians. This is so important for us. So, I cannot overstate this. Glory is the issue. And listen, we're addicted to ourselves. We're addicted to what we want and thinking about our rights. And it's not working anywhere. And some of you, you're trying it. You're chasing it. And it's not working and you get good seasons, you get good moments, and then you hit the wall again, and then you hit the hole again. It's not about us, it's about Him, and when you live for the glory of God, you have joy because you were made for that, and when you, were, when you do what you were made for, you're most joyful. Just look at humanity, guys. Uh, no one can argue we're not hardwired to, to, to want to glorify something. I mean, why else do 30,000 grown men and women paint their bodies, get half naked, go to a stadium to watch grown men fall on the ground and push a pigskin? Why? why? Go to a concert. Why? Man, that's, that's in you. You want to glory something. You want to elevate something. You want to find yourself bound up in something. And if it's not in the Romans 11, God of the Scriptures, it's a lost cause. It's a lost cause. But here's my question. What happens? And this is the sobering reality. What happens when us, finite humanity, take a life that God gave us for his glory, for his name and renown? Take his infinite wisdom, his infinite riches, his infinite love, his immensity of mercy, and decide to try to use them like they're rightfully ours. And judge God and scrutinize God. And try to counsel God and tell him he didn't make the world right and he should have done this and should have done that. Tell him that his glory's not good enough. We need something else to satisfy our souls. What happens when we just belittle his name? as he dwells in infinite perfections. You know, there are only two responses of God, and I say this all the time. If you want to see how serious sin is, look at his response. Hell and the killing of Jesus. And we're gonna talk about those next week. But for right now, where are you stealing glory? Where are you trying to give glory to things other than himself? Let's take some stock and ask him. Lord, help us. We are a people that need you. We need to be realigned. We're thankful that Christ and his cross is the glory of God revealed to us in the most full way. Father, would you help us just in these few moments? Where are we the center of our solar system? Where are we the center of our universe? Father, would you free us from us enslaving ourselves? Father, where are we trying to hoard glory? Father, where are we scrutinizing you and counseling you? Father, what is the apple, what is the fruit, what is the thing in our garden? that we feel like we have to have that will bring about satisfaction. Father, we know that the answer to all of these questions is fundamentally answered in Jesus. That he is your glory made manifest, dwelt among us God in human flesh fulfilling the righteous requirements of a God who dwells in infinite perfection and allowing us to share in that and have that and to bring about and restore the broken fellowship that we have with you. Would you help us, Lord, to find our security, our wholeness, our glory in Jesus Christ? God, would you reveal yourself this morning in insatiable ways? Would you reveal yourself to friends and brothers and sisters in this room this morning to where they're like Isaiah and Ezekiel and John and Paul and Moses and others who say, Your glory is too much for me. It reveals who I am, it lays me bare. It shows me the spaces in my heart that are not aligned with yours. And Father, would you do a gracious work in them? Would you save some this morning from the pursuit of glory for themselves and allow them to enjoy life giving you praise for your name and renown? Father, would you help those of us that know you and love you solely because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose, giving us the ability to restore the, bro- the broken fellowship that was severed in Genesis 3. To not no longer exchange your glory for ours, but to enjoy your glory for yours. Would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen.